Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey Amen. What a beautiful song. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Um, as you're finding it, let me say it's just so good to see you and be with you. We need each other, and we need to worship the Lord together. And uh, this is a precious time in the life of every believer, the weekly, gather, weekly gathering of, of God's people together. Let me read John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. That's our passage this morning as we're working through John's gospel. It's a very famous, well-known, and controversial paragraph. And I don't want us to merely dabble in theological controversy or debate today. I don't want this passage to be a fodder for debate in as much as it should be a fuel for worship for us. And so let me read the text and then ask the Lord to help us. And I want us to notice, really, there's no outline or notes on the screen other than just the scriptures that we'll read and maybe a couple quotes from some old dead guys. But I want us to think about two words that I think this passage points us to. Sovereignty and security. Sovereignty and security. Let me read the text. Remember, this is in the middle of Jesus' bread of life discourse. He has fed the multitudes at the beginning of John 6. He walked on the water after that, and now he is speaking to the people that have gotten in the boats and come to him on the other side of the lake and asked him what this is all about. He says in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for waking us up this morning. You were not obligated to do so. It is by your new mercies that we are here today. Your steadfast love, which is new every morning. Show us your Son. Show us the beauty of your love for us in the gospel. Strengthen believers. And I plead that you would open the eyes of anyone that does not yet believe today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in this passage, I think we see one of the clearest 
and most beautiful combinations of the sovereignty of God mixed with the not incompatible but complementary truth of man's responsibility to believe. So let's look at this first word, sovereignty, that we see in this passage. Look again at verse 37. Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he says, all, every single one, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then he says that he has come down in verse 38, not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent me. And then he tells us what the will of the Father who sent him is. Verse 39, he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all, a specific group of all that he has given me, but raise it up, guarantee to bring them all the way to the end, to raise it up on that last day. So I want us to see that Jesus is speaking here in his bread of life discourse about salvation. He's talking about what it means to be one of God's people and ultimately to be with the Lord forever. And there is, notice this in this text, notice this in Jesus' words, there is a certainty to Jesus' words about salvation. Notice also that there is a unity, a complete unity between the Father and the Son. And although Jesus is fully God and fully man, which is a beautiful mystery that we see in the scriptures, even if we cannot completely understand it, we know that Jesus is perfect in all of his ways. And Jesus completely and perfectly accomplishes the mission of the Father. They're in unity here. And he tells us that the Father has given him a people and he is guaranteeing to this crowd that every single person that the Father gives to him, not maybe, but will come to him. And what does that mean? Jesus, I believe here, is speaking about salvation, how it works. He's given a kind of broad overview of what happens to a person when they go from death to life, when they go from not believing to believing, which is the, the necessary journey of every person that comes to faith. He's saying that at some point in their life, through the means of the gospel being heard, the, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to atone for, to satisfy the judgment that should be ours because all of us in some way are born in sin and rebellious, that Jesus has died on the cross and he has risen again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, that at some point in their life, all those that the Father has given to him will, through a myriad of means and sovereign plans and decisions and all sorts of things, they will hear the gospel. And Jesus is saying that he is guaranteeing to this crowd that all that the Father gives to him will exercise faith in Jesus and be saved. Now, this is not just spoken of here. I think that there are many texts in the Bible that speak to this definitiveness of salvation, this God-centeredness of salvation. Listen to Acts chapter 13, just a few verses to, to whet your appetite. We could read many more. This is Paul preaching here, and, he's, and Luke, the writer of Acts, records about Paul's ministry in this particular region. And when the Gentiles heard this, meaning Paul's preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And so there Luke gives us a, a kind of even more detailed clue that there is this 
eternal appointing, this heavenly, God-centered appointing to eternal life, and those people that he has appointed to eternal life believe. Paul gives us even more detail, I think, in Romans chapter 8. Let me start reading in verse 29, a famous passage. For those, and I think that those that Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 8 are part of the, they are the all that Jesus is speaking about in John chapter 6, verse 37, our text that we read. For those whom he foreknew, not just knew something about, but those whom he loved, that he set his affection on, he also predestined or predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son, which I think is a way of saying they will be saved. They will be brought to the finality of their salvation and they will be like Jesus. I think that's what verse 29 is saying. In order that he might be, meaning Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. And listen to verse 30, a famous verse in Romans, which is often referred to in the history of sort of, you know, the church and theological circles as the golden chain, the unbreakable chain of salvation. Verse 30, I think, summarizes... It doesn't say everything that we need to say about salvation, but it is an overarching summary of what happens in salvation, and it fits perfectly with what Jesus, I think, is saying in verse 37. Remember, have in the back of your mind that Jesus has said to this crowd that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then Paul in verse 30 of Romans chapter 8 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called meaning every single one that he predestined, he also called. In other words, he determined to call them, open up their heart to the hearing of the gospel so that they would believe. And those whom he called, he also justified. So embedded in that calling is he's giving in the call an ability to have faith, which allows the person to put their faith in Jesus, which makes them justified from their sin, not their own righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. And those, every single one of them, and not one less, not one more, those whom he justified, he guarantees that they will make it all the way to the end because he, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And something that's really interesting about verse 30, that last verse there, is that the word glorified is in past tense, which is actually speaking of a future event, which is your glorification. So if you're out there, wow, how does this fit together? Well, the Holy Spirit as it's inspiring Paul to write Romans 8, apparently has no trouble in speaking of future events that haven't happened yet in an earthly sense in the past tense. So all those that the Father has given to the Son, Paul is saying to us, somehow in God's kind, mysterious providence, they will be called by God in time, in real time in their life. Their hearts will be open to the gospel they will be aware of their sin. They will know that God is holy and they're not. They will know, they will realize that there's nothing that they can do in their own righteousness to atone for their sin. And with that awareness comes this gift of faith and that faith then they will place in God the Son who lived a perfect life and laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice, atoned for our sin and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and now calls us and gives us the ability through the gift of saving faith to trust in Him, to put our hope in Him, which then allows us to be justified. And all those that do that, Paul is saying here, will every single one of them, not one more, not one less, will make it all the way home and will be glorified. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says this too. Let's just look at one more text. 
from Paul, Ephesians 2, verse 4. I think it gives us even more detail as to how this happens. This is, a, this is a really getting into what Jesus is saying here in verse 37, where he says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, in verses 1 through 3, which we weren't, he's basically said in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter that all of us are dead in our sins. And even though you're very much alive, you're dead in your sins, which I think speaks to our inability to do anything in and of ourselves in our own righteousness to make ourselves right with God. I think that's what spiritual death means. Paul then says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. And so Paul, I think, even whittles it even further down into more detail. He says, basically, sin, which we have all inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, it's been passed down from us through the generations. Sin has left all of mankind in a state of spiritual death, which is a kind of spiritual inability to change your natural state or do anything to reconcile yourself to God. And while we were yet dead in our sins, what happens is, is that God becomes because he's rich in mercy to these all that he has given the son, he has brought them to life. He's made that dead heart alive. The theological term is regeneration. That dead heart, which had nothing in it, no faith, no ability, no righteousness on its own to commend itself to God. God makes alive by the Spirit of God. He regenerates a dead heart. And that moment, that new life is equipped with grace through faith, that gift of faith with God then enables the dead heart to awaken and trust in Jesus. So must you, do you have to believe in Jesus? Do you have to exercise faith in Jesus to be saved? Of course, nobody's a saved. Nobody is a Christian. Nobody is saved apart from making a conscious decision of faith in Jesus. But that faith, that ability to have that faith comes from somewhere, and it comes from God, who makes a dead heart alive. And let's just go down just a few verses further that we'll handle next week. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless... The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus in short form here, I think it's just summarizing the utter sovereignty of God and salvation. You're completely dependent on me, on God, on the Holy Spirit to draw you to myself, on the Father to draw you to me, and those whom the Father draws, I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 37, and I think it speaks to the, the first half of verse 37, and I think it speaks to the, the exhaustive and unconditional sovereignty of God and salvation. However, that's not all this passage or the Bible says about salvation. It also says 
that even though God is exhaustively sovereign and knows the future and I think has determined the future and has a people that he's given to the Son, also in this beautiful mystery that we cannot fully comprehend from our perspective, he also says that every person is responsible to respond. In fact, that's what the second half of verse 37 says. So he says in verse 37, first part, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then he says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there's a people that God has given me that will come to me, and whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's my point, brothers and sisters and friends. It would be a mistake for us to overinterpret the sovereignty of God that Jesus, I think, is clearly alluding to here in verse 37 to surmise or to deduce or to take away from that as if, well, then, if God is utterly sovereign and if he knows who will come to Jesus, in fact, he's already given them to Jesus in eternity past, well, then what difference does it make? That's not the conclusion of the Bible to this truth. In fact, listen to what Jesus himself also says in Matthew chapter 23. Now, I want you to have in the back of your head the certainty of what Jesus says in John 6. He, Jesus is saying, that I have not come just to merely make salvation possible or an open-endedness, but I have come to actually accomplish salvation for all those that the Father has given me. Have that open on your, your mental computer screen as we read Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus also says this, Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus is approaching the last week of his life, coming into Jerusalem, in the Passion Week, and he says in verse 37, as he laments over his people, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Notice Jesus's, notice Jesus's perspective there. As he's coming into Jerusalem, it's not, well, these poor creatures, you know, they just never really had a chance because they're not part of the all that the Father has given me. He says, and you were not willing. Let's back up from the text that we read this morning in verses 35 through 40, and let's read again what we read last week in verses 27 and 29 of John 6. And then I want to make an important point that may not be readily evident on the surface about what Jesus is doing here and who he's speaking to. So in verses 27 and 29 of John 6, he says to the crowd, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said to them, answered them, this is the work of God that you, to this crowd, that you believe in whom he has sent. Okay, so 
Let's zoom out for a second because I, understanding the setting and the context here is really important for you to be able to put these two truths together and understand this beautiful biblical truth in its wholeness. In the verses that we read today, Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. But just moments before, he has said to this crowd that if you will believe you, God, I'm, this, God is giving the Son to you, this food, remember symbolically that we talked about, the bread of the Son to you. And what's the work that you must do? You believe, you must believe. This is the work of God that you must believe. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, I've been quoting him often. He is a, uh, uh, an English, he was an English preacher back in the mid-1800s. What he says about this text, listen to this. And he's going to, I think, put together in a way that really combines the tension that we all feel in these truths. The sovereignty and definitiveness of God over salvation, and yet the responsibility of man to believe. So this is what Ryle says on this text. He says about what we just read, verses 27 through 29 of last week, when our Lord says, meaning Jesus, the Son of Man shall give you the meat or the food that endureth to everlasting life. He appears to me to make one of the widest and most general offers to unconverted sinners that we have anywhere in the Bible. The men to whom he was speaking were beyond question. Now, this is the crowd that's followed him, right? They were beyond question carnal-minded and unconverted men. Yet, even to them, Jesus says, the Son of Man shall be given unto you. To me, Ryle continues, it seems an unmistakable statement of Christ's willingness and readiness to give pardon and grace to any sinner. It seems to me to warrant ministers in proclaiming Christ's readiness to save anyone and in offering salvation to anyone if he will only repent and believe the gospel. He continues, election, no doubt. And what he means by election, he's not talking about first Tuesday in November. He's talking about the choice, the choosing, the electing of God, of the all that he will give to the Son that will come to him. Election, no doubt, is a mighty truth and a precious privilege. Complete and full redemption, no doubt, is the possession of none but the elect. That's what Jesus, I think, is saying in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come. But how easy it is, Ryle says, in holding these glorious truths to become more systematic than the Bible and to spoil the gospel by cramping and limiting it. Amen. Listen, if you call yourself a Calvinist, and I'm going to put my cards on the table, I, I think what John Calvin wrote about salvation is true. I think it's an unfortunate term, but I think it's true. So put me in that camp. If you can't read that, and J.C. Ryle was what you would call a Calvinist, if you can't read that and agree with it and rejoice in it, then you misunderstand you are over-applying the sovereignty of God to the diminishment of the biblical truth of the responsibility of dead sinners to repent. And so when we say amen to the certainty of God, 
we need to have the warm heart of evangelism that says also, Amen! To everybody must make a real decision to believe. And how that works out, friends, we're the clay, not the potter. It's okay if we don't understand how the process fully works. We're the creature, not the creator. One, one more little quote I know. I read these preaching books, and it says, don't read long quotes because people can't follow along. And to that I say, oh, you don't know my people. They can follow along. <laughs> One more, one more, one more. From this obscure English preacher in the mid-1800s named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says about this truth that I think is so beautifully stated, and this is one of the reasons why I love Spurgeon, because Spurgeon believed fiercely in the sovereignty, the utter exhaustive sovereignty of God and salvation. But yet he believed in the responsibility of every person to believe. And how you put those two things together is a beautiful mystery. And Spurgeon was not afraid of how the Bible puts these things together and just calls us to obey both truths. He says that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not it is just the fault of our weak judgment. Amen. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two, that two truths can ever contradict one another, each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. Amen. So before we move on to the second thing I want us to think about is security, just a, a couple, what, what, are we to, what are we to make of this truth, friends? What are we to take home? We can never weld them together here. Do you see? Don't be scared of the biblical tension. Believe both things. God is utterly sovereign. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, Jesus says. And yet he can, the same Jesus, later on in his life as he's approaching Jerusalem in the last week before he's crucified, can look over Jerusalem and say, oh, that I would that you would come, but you would not. Both things are true. Both things are scripture. Both things come from our Lord's mouth. And so friends, Live in this. Be the pot, not the potter. He is utterly sovereign. No one can come to the Father unless he draws us. The only hope we have is the unconditional, not based on anything in us, not based on anything prior in us, not based on any ability in us, not based on anything in us. Only hope we have is the unmerited, free, sovereign grace of God. And yet... And yet God offers the beautiful gospel to whoever, whosoever will believe. And how he works those two things out, friends, is God's business, not ours. Our business is to give him all the glory for our salvation. 
and to take all of the responsibility for obeying the command to repent and believe. And God in his beauty does glorify, God-glorifying things with those two truths. So, what should this do for us? Just a couple thoughts before we run along. Well, God deserves all the glory for salvation, friends. That's, that's incredibly important to realize. When we see this truth that he has given a people to his son and that they will come to him, that should produce in us a humility. So there's nobody in this room who can attribute their redemption, their regeneration, their salvation, their justification, their final glorification to any ability. Don't think that God really needed you on his team. Okay, don't think that. And don't say about some knucklehead Hollywood psychopath that happens to be charismatic. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful how God could use them if he saved them or some great athlete? God doesn't need human giftedness. God will save whom he will save. And so, if you are a believer, all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the worship for your salvation should go to God alone. This should produce in you more worship, more humility, and we're bleeding into the next point we're going to get here in just a second. It should produce in you more security because God didn't, if he didn't save you because of anything you could offer him, then he's not keeping you depending on whether or not you're offering anything to him in that moment. So it should produce in the believer humility and worship. And it should produce in all of us a kind of humility that God is able to do whatever he wants. So no one, not one single person is beyond his reach because Jesus stands in front of the unbelieving crowd and he tells them, you must believe and we must do the same. So listen to me, if you're in this room right now and you are concluding from this that your life is so wicked and you're mind is so depraved that you must not be one of the ones that God has given to the Son. Oh, don't think that, dear one. What? Don't think that. Please don't think that. God delights. He delights in drawing dead hearts to himself. And don't elevate your sin over the rich and unfathomable mercy of God. He delights in saving unrepentant sinners. He delights in taking dead hearts and making them alive. None of us are beyond God's grace. So right now, like, believe, believe, like trust in Jesus, believe. You tell me you don't have it all figured out. You've got some doubts. You've got some, some reason. I, oh, well, okay, so do I. Welcome to the merry band of people who don't have it all figured out. Don't elevate your creaturely thoughts and philosophical doubts over the rich mercy of God. Like when, what will be enough for you? What will be enough for you? God in his kindness is in his son and he offers you, he offers you, dear one, no matter your situation, no matter the depths of the history of your sin, no matter how hard your heart is, he is stronger than that and his mercy is richer than that and he offers to you, to you right now and you must Believe, please believe, please believe that, please believe that. Don't leave this 
room today without wrestling with that and believing that and talking to somebody. If you don't believe that, please believe that. Please believe that. Security. Notice God's keeping of believers. He says to the believer right now that is racked with sin and whose life is in turmoil that if you come to me, I will never cast you out. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. Paul referenced and quoted a little bit earlier before we sang that beautiful song. Peter's words in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this, verse 4. To an inheritance, it's a future, meaning heaven, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verses 4 and 5 are wonderfully beautiful. God is basically saying that I'm keeping you by enabling you even in your imperfect faith to cling to me. I'm guarding you. I'm holding you by enabling you to weakly hold on to me. And I'm guaranteeing that it will result in a salvation that will be revealed on that day. Friends, This is a wonderful promise to every weak believer who has been put through the ringer that God will lose none of his people. That's what Jesus is saying here in this text. Look again at the the passage. He's saying that I shall lose nothing of all that he's given to me, but I will raise it up on the last day. I will never cast him out, verse 37. Now, friends, are there there people in the world who claim to be Christians, who maybe even think that they're Christians, who on that last day will eventually be shown to be not truly Christians? Yes. Yes. In fact, I think that's what Jesus is getting at in the parable of the soils or the sower in Mark chapter 4. He says it in some of the other Gospels too, but I know it's in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus offers this parable and he says that there's these four types of soils and the farmer throws out seed. First type of soil is just snatched away quickly by the birds and second type of soil is like rocky ground and the third type of soil is weeds choke it out. The interesting thing about the second and third types of soil is that the seed of the gospel, which I think is a symbol of new life, seemed to have taken root for a while but ultimately it didn't endure. In the fourth type of soil, Jesus said, is the good soil where the seed of the gospel takes root and it endures to the end. I think what Jesus is saying is that of soils type two and three is that it seemed to be taking root in them for a while. It seemed to be good soil. It seemed to be a person who was truly converted. 
But the circumstances of life, the cares of this world, tribulation came along and choked it out, and they never actually were good soil. My point being is that, yes, the Bible has a category for people who are falsely deceived or who believe in a cheap grace or who don't really understand the gospel when they think that they do. And friends, that is one of the reasons why we need to be in community so that we have, you know, we have kind of 360 degree vision of our lives so that we have people speaking into us because we all have blind spots. We don't want to find ourselves in one of those categories where we think we're Christians, but we find out on that day that we're actually not, and God has given us one another to help guard against that. But friends, notice, notice, back to the guarantee of God, notice how certain this guarantee is. He's saying that I will, not maybe, I will raise you up on that last day. This is what Paul says, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's coming back again. And what's what's happening when he comes back again, Paul goes further in Philippians 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject, to subject all things, all things to himself. Well, what's that getting? Friends, we could, take, we, could, we could take on another whole other direction of this sermon and look at the resurrection and the final state of glorification of all believers, which is what Jesus is referring to when he says that he will raise us up on that last day. The bottom line is, is that salvation isn't just the earthly temporal aspect of having our sins forgiven, but it is the future promise that we will be made like Jesus someday. We will be glorified, we'll be resurrected, and we will be with him forever. That's what Jesus is getting at and Paul is getting at and the New Testament gets at. Or friends, let's land this plane. Okay, how does that help us today? How does the fact that Jesus has promised that those that the Father has given to him will make it all the way home, that they will be resurrected, and they will be with him, like him, forever. How does that help me? How does Jesus' promise help me today? How does my certain future, Christ-like glorification, help me today? Well, for the young man that is battling temptation, Part of the problem in giving into sin is that we consider, we spend all week considering the power of our flesh, and it is strong. We spend all week considering and exposing ourselves to the power of our flesh, and we forget or don't take the time to expose ourselves to the power of this promise of the gospel. How do you fight the counterfeit promise of this world that this thing will bring you pleasure? By fighting it with the greater promise of the joy and the freedom and the pleasure, the greater pleasure of the promise of Jesus that he will resurrect you and you will be like him and you will be with him forever. That's better than a cheap thrill. That's better than sinful gratification. The problem is, this is the, where the rubber meets the road on sanctification. 
It is considering the two promises, the promises of the flesh and this world, or the promises of the glory of glorification and being like Jesus forever, which is better by far, like we just sang. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And here, friends, here's the battle of the Christian life. Here's the battle I fight. Here's the battle you fight. We, we forget that promise because we drink from the cisterns of this world through the week. Sometimes necessarily, you got to be out in the world. You got to be in that platoon. You got to be around that platoon sergeant who talks horribly. You got to be around your buddies. You got to be in the cubicle at work. You got to be, you got to be there. And, you, and you're just getting polluted with the false promises of this world. Friends, that's why we need each other. That's why we need the word of God. That's why we need the people of God so that we can come in and take a bath every week. Every time we come to the word, to the word together or individually, we take a bath and we remind ourselves that Jesus is better, that his promises are more satisfying, and this world cannot compete with them. Thomas Chalmers of... Scottish Puritan, I've quoted him before. He preached a famous sermon called the expulsive, not explosive, although it is explosive, the expulsive, the, the, the type of power that expels, that kicks something out, the expulsive power of a new affection. And he says the way that you fight sinful affections is by spending time thinking about the more beautiful, the more satisfying expulsive affection of what Jesus has done for you. And friends, there's no shortcut to that. We all struggle with that. We all got dirt on us. We all are tempted in one way or another. And one of the reasons God gives us the church, one of the reasons God gives us his word, one of the reasons he gives us each other is so that we can come in here week after week, dirty, nasty, with mud on. Our windshields are just drenched with the muck of this world. And we need to come in here and remember, we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. It's better. There's something better than a cheap thrill. There's something better than making myself the center of the universe. And it is this promise. It's this promise. It's this free and never-ending pleasurable promise that I will be like him someday and I need to hold on to that and I need to link arms with my brothers and sisters who believe that and I need to stagger and limp and fall down at the finish line and I know that I'll get there because he's promised that I will. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And you know what? You know what? I believe this, but Tuesday morning, I'm going to doubt this. Or Tuesday morning, or Wednesday morning, I'm going to get upset about something, I'm going to get anxious about something, and my world's going to shrink. So I need to come back with you, I need to come back with this word, and I need my heart and my mind expanded to this promise that I will never leave you, I will never cast you up, I'm taking you somewhere, and you will be raised up on that last day, and you'll be like me. And every flesh, every sinful desire, every selfish motive, it'll be gone on that day, it'll be gone on that day, but until then, I need to walk towards that with you and you need to walk towards that with me because Jesus has taken somewhere and we friends we every single one of us everyone that the father has given we'll get there we will get there let's pray Lord Lord if Lord help us with this help us I believe I believe but help my unbelief Lord help us with this strengthen my brothers and sisters and for any friends in this room who don't yet believe this, awaken their hearts. Lord, would they please, please give them eyes to see and believe this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.